You know, today is a, a special day. I'm curious, uh, feel free to shout it out. Who knows what today is? Pentecost Sunday. It is Pentecost Sunday. That's right. And that is why uh, we're, we're doing like a, a, a two-parter here. Last week, Leah Richter brought a phenomenal message on the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. And we're continuing that today as I talk to you about the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. Because it is Pentecost Sunday. And we think of Pentecost, all of us think of Acts chapter 2. We think of the upper room. We think of the disciples gathering on the 50th day after Easter, which is why it's called Pentecost. It means 50th. They were gathered there in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. And, and they started speaking in languages of, of everyone in the room. People had gathered from all across the known world at that time. And the Holy Spirit poured out, and they could understand each other as if they were speaking each other's native tongue. Now, I've mentioned before that I used to work at Wycliffe Bible Translators for about seven years, uh, predominantly in their human resources area, and I fell in love with the mission of Bible translation, and I've loved it and supported it ever since. For years, they, they use the language, uh, the, 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 the terminology rather, heart language, when they talk about a native tongue. They say heart language. And I always thought that was kind of silly and cheesy, and I just rolled my eyes at it, even though I literally worked there. Um, until one time, about a year into uh, my employment at Wycliffe, uh, I was in an orientation for, for paid staff that they had just kind of kicked off uh, for the first time, which is why I had been there for a year before I got to go through orientation. Um, but in that meeting, they defined heart language for the first time, and uh, it, it changed my perspective entirely. They said that a heart language is the language that you think, dream, and pray in. It's your default. I know a lot of bilingual people. Some of my best friends, uh, Rose and Angel, are from Puerto Rico, and their uh, heart language is Spanish. And, and when they read God's word, they're usually reading a Spanish Bible, even though they know English uh, as well as anybody else. I can carry on a complete conversation with them, and I would never even guess that English was their second language. And yet they read their Bible in Spanish. Because when they dream, they dream in Spanish. Because when they think, their inner dialogue is in Spanish. It's the language they were uh, implanted with at birth, I guess you could say, through their parents, through their culture. And God knows Spanish. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's not just English that he's aware of. He knows every language out there. Every single one. Did you know there's over 7,000 languages? Before I worked at Wycliffe, I thought there were like 250, right? And I was including dialects of Chinese and, and Spanish and, and different Romance languages, but no, there's over 7,000 of them. And there's a reason that I'm talking to you about this because it's actually something that, that Sandra uh, hinted at that she's apparently talking with the kids right now, which is really awesome, and that's Acts 1.8. And, and we're going to talk about the first gift the Holy Spirit gives you when he indwells you, the first gift. Now, I was um, uh, attending a church that was of a denomination that uh, believed in a specific doctrine that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you pray in tongues, and that is the, the initial evidence is what they call it. And if you don't speak in tongues, you are not filled with the Spirit. That was their take on it, and they get that from Acts chapter 2. Personally, I would push back on that theology 
because I want to talk to you about the very first gift, the very first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes into you. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I just want to set the stage that that's what we're building towards. What is the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does, and then why does he do it? And that's where we're going to, going to kind of tie everything up here in a couple minutes. But before we get there, I want to talk to you for a second about the year 1791. In American history, it was actually a big deal. That was the year we ratified the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, the one that probably everyone in here knows uh, the most would be the First Amendment, right? Free speech, freedom of religion, religious expression. Right? That's one that we're intimately familiar with. But something else happened that year, and I actually have it written down word for word because I don't want to misquote him. Wednesday morning, March 2nd, 1791, was when the founding father of Methodism, John Wesley, passed away. The night before, on March 1st, he shared numerous parting words with his disciples, friends, and family who had gathered around his bedside. And he shared this in particular. One of the several parting words to them was this, and I quote, the best of all is this, God is with us. God is with us. Those were the words that John Wesley chose to leave with his disciples, with his family, with his friends. That's what he wanted them to know. At the end of all things in his life here on earth, the most important thing that he could share is God is with us. And we read that in two places in Scripture. They're in your notes. The first is in Colossians, the second one in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read them real quick. Colossians 1.27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ himself indwells you. That was the, the context of the very first sermon I ever presented in this church my favorite message to ever share with anyone, the hope that is the eternity of Christ in you. The second passage we have is in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Like Leah talked about last week, not only do we have Christ inside of us, but we have the Holy Spirit as well. I like to, to joke when I was the, the youth pastor that um, you, know, you have like two-thirds of the Trinity in you. And the reality is you kind of have all three because God the Father is omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? So you've, you've got a triune God residing within you. He is with you. Everywhere you go, you take him. Every room you enter, he's there, not because you invite him, but because he's already inside you. And so when, when, uh, when we pray and we ask God to, to be with us, it's, it, it really is nothing more than a reminder to us that he already is. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He is inside of you. God is with us. But that's not the only thing uh, that I wanted to talk about. As I reflected on these words, I was deeply motivated because I was reminded of all that our church has gone through, not just here at Belle Isle, but the big C church, the global church of Jesus Christ around the world, what it's experienced. And the reminder for us today is that no matter what we've been through, no matter what we're going through, or what we may go through in the future, God is with us. 
And that is enough. That can sustain us. That is, that is the most practical thing you'll ever hear in your life that God is with you. It's not a theological statement. It's a reality. The creator of the universe. The one who died for your sins and resurrected. The one who filled the upper room at Pentecost dwells inside of you. Every second of every day, he dwells inside of you. I wrote this down as well because it's a John Wesley quote, and I don't want to misquote him. So God is with us, and because of this reality, we, the body of Christ, have a task to perform. We have a purpose to achieve. As John Wesley would say, a charge to keep, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save, and faith for the scared. We have a task to accomplish. Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those of you who have been here for a long time, you know that for the majority of its existence, the missions committee has also been known as the Acts 1-8 team. This was sort of their founding verse. So here's the, the really interesting thing. Our task is the evangelism of the nations. Our task is the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to share the gospel, right? to preach to everything, to the uttermost bounds of the earth, but it's preceded by a very important event. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The task can't be accomplished without him. We're powerless without him. Like Jesus said in John 15, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in them, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I looked up the word nothing in the Greek. It means nothing. (laughs) Nada, zilch, zero. You can do nothing apart from Christ, and you can't do the Great Commission apart from the Holy Spirit. And as Leah mentioned last week, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, is a, a moment in time. Uh, in, in the Greek, uh, we would say the aorist tense, it's punctiliar. It means that it's something that happened in a point in time and never again. It was a one-and-done kind of thing, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But when the Bible talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, like Leah mentioned, it is a present tense. It is a, it is a continual filling, something that, that needs to happen to us. Just like God has grace renewed for us every day, the Holy Spirit fills us every day. And we need to welcome the Holy Spirit into us every day. So we do all of this under the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And I want to turn now to not Acts chapter 2, but to a passage in the Old Testament that I love, and that I think a lot of people don't really think about when they're talking about the Holy Spirit, which is why I wanted to talk about it. We're going to turn to Ezekiel. We're going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, and the Bible scholars among you are going to know that uh, this passage is about the Valley of Dry Bones. I had a professor in college who used to say that any reference to the Spirit in the Old Testament is not about the Holy Spirit because they didn't have a concept of the Holy Spirit. So clearly they couldn't write about him. To which I would say, God wrote the Bible, so maybe 
he was putting that in there even if they didn't have a concept because God authored it through people. So anyway, all that to say I disagree and I think this is about the Holy Spirit. So uh, Ezekiel 37, uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through the whole first 14 verses and then I want to break it down and kind of talk to you about the Holy Spirit's role in this passage and what it means for us uh, today in the 21st century. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. I'm going to pause. Why would he do that? He was trying to give Ezekiel a wide breadth of understanding of just how barren these bones were, just how hopeless in the eyes of man it would be. Verse 3, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. The Hebrew word for breath is the same word for spirit. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same word that is also translated spirit a couple verses back when the spirit of the Lord took him to the valley. Okay, so uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I like to think that it was the ankle bone connected to the calf bone, the calf bone connected to the knee bone, the knee bone to the hip bone, all the way up to the head, right? These bones crackling as they they slam together. This would be horribly disgusting to see, I, I imagine. Suddenly, all of these bones just rattling and shifting around. You've got like the skull is over in the north part of the valley, and the torso is over in the west part of the valley, and they're just flying towards each other. And I should be like, Can you, I don't want to, like, uh. Like, if this was in a movie, half of us would look away. Because they'd be like, ugh. I actually think it was probably pretty cool, but. <laughs> so, I prophesied it as I was commanding. There was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons, and flesh appeared on them. What is that? That's the, that's the sinew. That's the, the muscles. We know that it's not the skin because the skin comes next, and this is actually the gross part, right? Because now there's bones, and then there's, like, muscles. It's like that diagram of the doctor's office where there's no skin on it. Are there eyes yet? Because it's, it's, a, it's a scary picture, right? But God was in it, and I don't think that Elijah was, uh, Ezekiel was terrified. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. There was no spirit in them. So they had skin, they were fully formed, but they were still dead. Could that be a word for the church? Is it possible to look alive and still be dead? Is it possible to have the word of God and worship and religious activities and miss it? I think so. I think it is. 
Because these bodies, they were fully reformed, but they were not yet alive. They needed the breath of God. They needed the spirit of God. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of our Lord. Amen. He'll put his spirit in us and we will have life. I contend that the first gift of the Spirit that we ever experience is new life. That is the first thing that happens. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is up to God. I like to tell our youth they're the gifts of the Spirit, not the tools of the believer. I don't get to just wield them. He has to give them. And I found that, that, that people who, who, who prophesy, and Pastor Scott has done this uh, in church, that, that he will give them to us for a moment to be used for his glory for a moment, and they'll go away. I don't walk around prophesying 24-7, though that would be really cool. That's not what I do. That's not how God has chosen to operate in and through me. There are moments in time. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us and lives in us 24-7, he can can turn on a dime. He's ready. He knows exactly what we need to do, when we need to do it. And if we listen, we can follow. Because we only have life because of him in the first place. And so God was telling Ezekiel that these dry bones are, are the Israelites. The Israelites were such a small and abandoned people group. They'd been conquered countless times. They were currently under oppression. They felt forgotten. And God is saying, I'm going to send my spirit. You're going to come alive. You're going to be brought up out of the grave. This is, this is something that is fulfilled after the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is a vision that God gave Ezekiel that isn't fulfilled until Acts chapter 2 when the spirit finally comes down. Permanently. All throughout the Old Testament, you can, you can read about the Spirit of the Lord. Samson's one of the, the, the most famous uh, uh, stories about the power of the Spirit. Every time he's about to do some massive, incredible feat, it says the Spirit of God came upon Samson, and he did something mighty, like tearing apart a lion, quote, as one tears apart a young goat. I've never done that either. I'm not sure how easy it is to tear apart a young goat, but apparently... Everyone should try at some point. I don't know, but, but it was that easy for Samson to tear apart the lion, so good for him, right? When he brings down the temple, when he slays a thousand Philistines with the jawbone, right? All of these were preceded by, and the, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily. 
That's why I actually don't like depictions of Samson where he looks like the rock, like a bodybuilder, right? Because here's the thing, if he looks like the rock and then he beats a lion in hand-to-hand combat, I'm less impressed than if he looks like a dweeb. (laughs) I'm just saying. If the Spirit of the Lord had to come upon him, then maybe he wasn't 315 lean pounds of man muscle. Maybe he was instead thin and small, more like David, so that when David beats Goliath or when Samson beats the lion or the thousand Philistines or brings the temple down, instead of us glorifying David or Samson in their own human strength, we glorify God because we recognize there's no way without him. Because he is in you. And if you abide in him, you will bear much fruit, because apart from him you can do nothing. The first gift that the Holy Spirit gives us is new life, and the purpose for which he gives that life to us is the evangelism of the nations. There's a, uh, a concept uh, in, uh, here, here's a nice big word for you, missiology, the, the, the study and the practice and theory of missions work. There's a, a concept in missiology called the 1040 window, which is probably something many of you have heard of. If you haven't, I will tell you right now, the 1040 window uh, is from 10 north uh, to 40 south latitude. It's just a little bit above the equator and then a little bit more south of the equator, and it's this rectangular box that basically includes all of North Africa above the Sahara, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. So it's, it's this, this rectangle. And, and, and inside that box are what a lot of people call closed countries. I don't remember if it was Wycliffe or the Jesus Film or Crew, but one of those organizations uh, is where I first heard them not use the term closed country, and instead they called them creative access because they realize that no country is truly closed to God, because God can get in anywhere. And uh, uh, so, so in that group, uh, in, in that, that little rectangle, uh, who wants, to, I wanna hear someone yell out, who wants to guess how many people are in that rectangle? It's North Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Someone yell out a number. That's really close, 3.2 billion people. 3.2 billion in the 1040 window in countries that are almost all considered closed, at least to the average American Christian. But can I tell you something? Those countries are not closed. If you have an engineering degree, or if you are a teacher, or a doctor, or a research scientist, or, or, or a civil engineer, or, or someone who has a trade that would be valuable, that can get you in the door. Not every evangelist needs to go to seminary. Some evangelists need to go to trade school. Because, because those are the people that are getting into countries that I can't even name that I know they're getting into because I'm on the internet right now with the live stream. Right? I'm not going to get into... Uh, let, me, let me just pick randomly. Uh, they're not going to be too happy if I fly into Baghdad to preach the gospel on the street corner, right? But someone who's a doctor who gets in on a work visa because they're the head of radiology at St. John Hopkins or whatever, uh, they can get in. And then they can do the work of God. 
And, and so the work of evangelizing, uh, evangelizing the nations is not relegated to the pastors of your church. It's actually relegated to you guys. Because you all can get there. There's a, there's a difference here between the concept of unreached and the concept of lost. The majority of the people in those 3.2 billion are unreached. Now, unreached people are also lost, but lost people are not unreached. What do these words mean? Unreached means they lack access to the gospel. They don't have God's word available to them. Maybe it's completely illegal in their country. Maybe they're in a country like some of them in Southeast Asia, some island countries over there, that are, are very hostile to the gospel. Over 99% of the country is not Christian, and those who are hide it because it's jailable or even killable to be so. How easy we have it in America by comparison. And in these countries, these people are unreached because they lack access to the gospel. Someone who's lost is someone who can access the gospel, uh, but, but is not saved, right? So when you uh, get upset that we have missions all around the world, then you ask, well, what about Orlando? There's so many unreached people in Orlando. There's unreached people in my neighborhood. There's unreached people at my job. They're not unreached. You are there. You are their access to the gospel. So be the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit for the evangelism of the nations. You receive new life. Go into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost bounds of the earth. Take that gospel message to the people around you. You don't have to have a massive Billy Graham evangelistic ministry. You don't have to be the next Reinhard Bonnke or Daniel Kalinda. You don't have to be the next Keith Wheeler rolling the cross over 30,000 miles around the world you can be an evangelist at work. Maybe you're teaching your kids homeschool. You can be an evangelist in your little homeschool study group where you get together and have little parties and socialize your kids and get together with other moms and dads. You can evangelize in the supermarkets. You can evangelize anywhere. If someone is in your life, they're not unreached, they're just lost. So share the gospel. Share it far and wide, because why else are we here? The Great Commission is not for Pastor Scott. It's for Pastor Scott, but it's also for us. It's for every single one of us. We have been given new life so that we can share it. We can only do that through the Holy Spirit. So what is God saying in Ezekiel 37? The Valley of the Dry Bones. What does that have to do with evangelism? What he's saying is, it doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how disconnected you feel. It doesn't matter how disconnected your, your marriage is or things at work seem to be. No matter how scattered and distraught and just falling apart everything seems to be, there is still hope. Because the Holy Spirit, in an instant, is going to make the bones rattle. And then they're going to start connecting. And then muscles and tendons and skin. And once the skin is there, you're ready for the breath of new life that is the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful. Life in Christ. Life in the Holy Spirit. There's a story I want to share with you um, that is, uh, I, I had it checked with someone that I know who works there that knows the security and this can be shared including online. So I'm just going to read you this story 
It made me cry the first time I read it. Hopefully it doesn't make me cry here so I can actually get through it. Um, can, I, can I say what's in bold and underlined the location? Okay, so this is in East Asia. Jingyi welcomed the visitors to his village thinking they were teachers from his religion. This is a 100% verified true story, just so you guys know before we get into it. Thinking they were teachers from his religion. He served them so uh, they could rest, and at night he and his neighbors asked them to share their teachings for this special holy day they were observing. The visitors, who were actually Christian ministry workers, said they had come to show a film in the local language. A villager protested, film watching is unlawful in our religion. You will see that God will touch your hearts by this film, one of the ministry workers replied. For many years, your religious teachers came here, but this time God sent us to you. These words surprised Jingyi and his neighbors. They'd never heard their spiritual leaders speak like this before. Play the film, the villagers decided. One hour into the Jesus film, everyone in attendance had tears in their eyes. The Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of the villagers, including Jingyi. And by the end of the film, villagers were shouting, we want God who orders us to be one and not to put our children to death in war. Indeed, Jesus is God. Jingyi and his wife wasted no time saying, we want to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In response, 614 people ran to their homes to fetch buckets of water. Church, what would that look like for us? If someone wanted to be baptized and we were so excited, we all ran home and got a bucket of water and we're fired up and we're celebrating this. That is the kind of church I want to be a part of. That is the kind of fiery passion that I want to be a part of. I want a church that is ready, that isn't saying, well, maybe in a few weeks, the next time we do a baptism Sunday. No, I want to walk out into a pond and dunk someone in it because they can't wait another day for the baptism that follows salvation. They then declared that every coming generation would follow Christ too. After the baptisms, the villagers turned to the ministry team and said, play the film again, we want to see our God. The passion of new believers is intoxicating to me. That's how we should feel every day. When we pray, we enter into the presence of a holy and reverent, perfect God. Why don't we fall on our face more? Why don't we fall on our knees more? He is so good. And today, I, I feel like I would be <clears throat> remiss if I talked about the, the Holy Spirit and, and talked about how last week we shared that it's a continual feeling that happens constantly and not give you the opportunity to stand up and be filled again, and again, and again. And so, Bruce is gonna play some music, and I wanna invite you. Maybe, maybe you're already saved. Maybe you've already been filled with the Spirit. Maybe you've prayed in tongues. Maybe you've prophesied. Maybe you've prayed over someone and they've been healed. But today, you've walked through those doors like a valley. And as you sat down, the dry bones inside of you were rattling around, and you're just wondering, God, what are you gonna do? How are you going to fix this? There's no way you could breathe life into me again. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he can and he will. 
but you have to obey the word of God. Ezekiel obeyed, he prophesied, and the dry bones came to life. So you need to prophesy to your own dry bones. You need to be willing to stand up and say, it's me. Fill me again. 